1968, when you were running for the Senate, of course, Earl Warren announces his retirement, and Johnson wants to put Abe Fortas on the court. That didn't happen. And then you had this oh, Senator Griffin precluded that. What, what, what about, what, what did Senator Griffin do? Well, they couldn't get, you know, they, he let a fill, an effective filibuster that, you know, they, and then Johnson withdrew the nomination. You're talking about the Abe Fortas nomination? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, think, you think basically, is that, a, is that a good idea? I mean, if you establish the principle that a president in the last year of office, yeah. in effect, cannot put people on the court? Yeah, I don't think that was the reason of this last year of office. Uh, and I don't remember all the details. That, one, that uh, There were some, I think there were some ethical questions about Fortas and maybe his, even his relationship with the president yeah. in some different areas that, uh, you know, pretty good bipartisan support for killing the nomination. But it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It happened since. Bork, but he never got out of it. didn't happen yeah. on the floor. Did it? Right, yeah. right. And of course, as it turned out, the next year, Fortas resigned from the court because of ethical issues. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, Bob Griffin was not the kind of person to run around looking just for some partisan fight. I mean, a pretty moderate conservative yeah. Republican. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then uh, you come into the Senate in 69, and that's the year that uh, Nixon uh, obviously takes uh, office and is, is eager to remake the court. Yeah. Well, he had a great, uh, let's see, well, it, the, two nomin nominees who didn't make it. Yeah, the first was Clement Hainsworth. Should have made it. From he South was, Carolina, yeah. Very good man. He had few, you know, the things that he was, well, I, I teamed up with Senator Hollings, a Democrat, to try to help get the nomination through. And Senator By was on the other side. The voters, I remember, was 55-45 against. Uh, but Clement Hainsworth was really a highly, highly qualified judge. But they found a couple of things. I can't even remember something about the country club or some something. That, I think uh, some stock holdings. Yeah, stock, nothing you know, nothing that I think should disqualify a person. So I think that's the first nomination I think we made a mistake on. The second nomination was the guy from Harold Florida. Harold Kurzweil. G. Harold Kurzweil and from Florida. Uh, as I look back on it, we did the right, Senate did the right thing <laughs> in rejecting Carswell's nomination. Now, was that something that Dixon did just out of anger? I mean, he just was determined right. to have a Southerner and sort of stick it in the Senate's eye? or well, He was pretty upset, I remember that, because I was pretty active in the... I'd go to the White House and get in on these little skull, and skull sessions every morning. I think Lamar Alexander was in the White House at the time. And uh, was Bryce Harlow there? I think he probably was. So just look at how many votes we had, what would happen, who did da 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 who was going to speak that day. But, you know, Senator Bai is pretty effective. And what made Bai effective? I think his personality. Good guy and uh, smart, worked hard, articulate. Uh, but he felt strongly about 
these particular judges. And that's interesting because to the outsider, it looked like kind of an early test of strength with the new president, where particularly you had organized labor and civil rights groups who were in some, to some degree calling the shots, weren't they? I mean, yeah. But at least in those days, you got an up or down vote on the nominee. You know, you didn't have somebody uh, filibuster on the Senate floor, you never got a vote on the nominee, or you didn't report to the committee. And, uh, you know, I remember, of course, you may want to get to that, but when uh, Clinton, of course, appointed two justices, and he called me up as a Republican leader, said he's going to send up the name of Ginsburg and later Breyer. And I said, fine. He said, I appreciate, you know, expeditious as possible, which happened. You know, we had the hearings. We didn't agree with this, the philosophy of Ginsburg or Breyer, but they came out of the committee, and I think Ginsburg got about 97 votes or something, and Breyer got everybody who was there. He used to work for Senator Kennedy. Both good people. In fact, Ginsburg lives right down the hall from me in Watergate. I remember at the time Clinton saying, he had to get somebody close to Bob Dole. You know, that, that was his. <laughs> so he, he picked my neighbor. But uh, now it's changed. I mean, you, you know, I, I, I wanted just thinking out loud this last 18 months of the Bush administration. If there's a Supreme Court vacancy, you know, you think the Democrats are going to let it happen? Fill it? I doubt it. I never know, but. It also raises the question of whether the White House would be willing to, let's say it's John Paul Stevens, who would presumably yeah. be the most likely. I'd um, be good if he left, yeah. And, and he's obviously a, a staunch liberal. So by nominating a, quote, moderate, you, yeah. you still move the court, relatively speaking. Would, yeah, the they White House, would the White House be willing to do that, or would they want, again, because of the base, would they rather have? And with an election coming up, a line drawn in the sand, you know, and you know, that I am a president, I have a right to nominate. Da 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 da. And of course, even with Bush's low standing, I think mo most people would agree that President. At least that was our feeling with Clinton. We didn't agree with the nominees, but we agreed that he was president, well, unless there were some, you know open flaw somewhere that you could see, but in both cases, these as nominees were qualified. Well, that's, that raises this large issue, and, and, uh, and that is the supposition on the part of the Senate that a president is in fact entitled, whether it's the court or the cabinet, to have his choice barring some, as, yeah. as you say, overriding that was the prevailing view when you arrived in the Senate. Do you think it's the view today? No. It may, particularly when it comes to the court, I mean, you know, people have maybe have always realized the importance of the court, but with, with abortion now, Roe versus Wade, there's more and more focus on that one issue and uh, how important it is 
you know, to have Rudy Giuliani or whoever strict constructionist or versus somebody else. So the court, it's gotten the Supreme Court, I think, particularly. Most other nominees are going to make it through if they're, you know, if they're qualified. If they're not qualified, it shouldn't be up there. And sometimes presidents withdraw nominees, like uh, Bush withdrew recently the name of Mike Broody. You know Mike Broody. Uh, can't remember what the position was, but didn't have the votes. So now, it, you know, there is this kind of popular notion that this all sort of began with Bork, but in fact, it really began with with Hainsworth and Carswell. I mean, Haynes, Carswell. I mean, you could say Fortas, but that yeah. was sort of an isolated, unusual case. Uh, and if it were some it had it been some mudslinging partisan, I would, you know, but Senator Griffin was not in that category. Right. Very thoughtful, very smart, good lawyer. In fact, I think his son now serves on the circuit court somewhere. Now, uh, were you ever, uh, I mean, during the Nixon administration, when um, the president was considering nominees, did anyone ever ask for input? Oh, no, they just asked for output. <laughs> Get out there on the floor of it in. <laughs> and again, again, working with Senator Hollings was, uh, talk about a staunch supporter, Senator Hollings was really, I thought, very effective and very, well, I agreed with him, so, you know, but uh, kind of developed a friendship there that lasted throughout the Senate because I was uh, helping one of his friends. That raises two other things. One is, how did he feel about his fellow Democrats? I mean, the, or the, let's say the prevailing yeah, but I, forces of the Democrats. Knowing the Hollings, I assume if somebody read the record, they, they would find out about how he felt about his fellow Democrats. I hope he didn't go over the line, but <laughs> but he was, you know, he, he could be rather critical, to say the least. And today there wouldn't be an Ernest Hollings in the Senate, would there? I mean, that kind of conservative Democrat from the South. Nope, they're gone. Uh, who was the last? Well, John Bro, maybe. Sort of a, but he was more of a moderate. Uh, you know, you don't have the Stennises and the Russells and the uh, oh, the Russell Long is pretty conservative. In everything, but. Why are they tax gone? area? Why why are they gone? The country has changed, and Republicans appeal to a lot of Southerners. And I've got to see. I think a lot of it was maybe racially motivated too, uh, which is not the right way to capture voters, but the fact of life. I mean, I think they uh, the liberal wing of the Democrats took over the party. President Johnson, with the help of Hubert Humphrey and other liberals, was finally were finally able to get the Civil Rights Bill passed over the objection of Senator Russell, who probably knew more about the Senate than anybody, well, maybe Robert Byrd now. But I think you can give Johnson credit for doing the right thing, but the result was losing the South. Remember what he said when he signed the bill? He said... 
There goes the sound. Oh, did he say that? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's about like Bush in Iraq. There goes the party. <laughs> the, the uh, what were the those? I mean, it's fast. Those are names in a history book to most of us. But I mean, the the Richard Russells and the um, and the John Stennises. Um, uh, apart from their politics, just in terms of what they brought to the Senate. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get to serve a Russell that long, but, you know, he was one of the buildings, Senate buildings named after Richard Russell. I mean, he was a, maybe segregation was too strong a word, but he was not any supporter of civil rights and, and was the leader of the anti-civil rights effort. Uh, but he still had the respect of everybody in his party. I mean, he's one of those people who couldn't have a point of view and not... Uh, not frustrate everybody else, but uh, because he knew the Senate, he knew the rules, he knew how the game was played, and very effective. Senator Stennis, on the other hand, was kind of a quiet. Never heard. I've never heard Senator Stennis get up and criticize another member in either party. And it happened, but if it, I wasn't around when it happened. And I think I've already said, I think when I was elected to the Senate, my predecessor, Senator Carlson, told me to go to get acquainted with Senator Stennis because he was just a decent, good person, which I did. But uh, Now, those people obviously embodied the seniority system. Oh, well, then you well, had, you know, the, the conservative, then you had people like Hubert Humphrey, uh, the moderate to liberals are proud to be in that category. But still had a lot of, you know, everybody liked them in the Senate. They, they didn't split the Democrats. I mean, they didn't agree with them. And Humphrey could always pick up some of us and some of his... But he, Is that I, gone to that, that... I mean, the Senate in those days seems like a much more hierarchical place, maybe because of the seniority system. Yeah, you know, the old saying is you don't like it till you you have some of it. You know, it's, it's, you hate seniority when you first get there. And then when, when you're in your 10th year, you think, boy, this is great. And somebody else is sitting down at the end. Yeah, but uh, well, I think lost? it's changed a lot. I think the thing that's changed is the, the so-called Republican-Democrat coalition. You know, we used to have what, 33, 35 Republicans, but you always had 10, 15 Southern Democrats and on some issues. But even then, I can't remember except for civil rights bill when the when the filibuster rules were used so much. I think then you needed 67 votes. It's been changed to 60. And we're seeing this week, I mean, you've got to have 60 votes to pass any amendment on Iraq. It's a given. So a majority is not 51 anymore, it's 60. And, that, and that's happened just in the past, I'd say, 10 years, maybe, maybe 12. It was, it was starting to happen when, when I was leaving the Senate. We'd be more cloture motions filed. You couldn't even proceed to the bill, which always seemed to me to be kind of strange. But... Uh, so now it's 
It's a different, different animal. It's harder to get anything done. Seems to be. I mean, everybody walks the walk, but they don't talk the talk. They know oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this together. Uh, immigration was a good example. Should have done something on immigration. I mean, that's that's part of leadership. Yet, you, you know, make some choices, but. Uh, how do you explain, because I'm sure people come up all the time to you, just average people, yeah. and uh, either say, I wish you were back there, or oh, yeah, know, I missed you on C-SPAN, or, yeah. but I mean, how, I assume they come up and say, why can't those SOBs get anything done? You can hear a lot of that, and I'm not sure that maybe you probably heard it when when I was there, but I guess people want to be nice to you, we wish you were back there, we really need you back there, and we need to get things done. And uh, but if you ask them what they need to get done, they probably, in some cases, probably wouldn't know. But they they just don't like what they see and hear. You know, they're up to their eyeballs with all this name calling and President Bush is a liar or somebody else is this. Somebody, yeah, you know, that's and you're you're the historian that that may have happened a hundred years ago. I guess a couple of cases it got even pretty rough, but I don't know about the name calling. I think they're more gentlemen than. It's almost as if there's a parallel universe. There's the people going through the motions on Capitol Hill, and then there's this television, and now internet. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm. It's like living in Schumerville. I mean, this guy is on every network every night with some jive at the president. I mean, the guy just, he must stay awake nights thinking, now tomorrow I'm going to do this and this. I can make ABC, NBC, and CBS. Now, and you didn't do that 35 years ago? Not quite that way, no. We thought D'Amato was pretty bad in front of a camera, but well, I think we used Is to say that. Is it something about New Yorkers? Yes, well, I think I said the most dangerous place in the capital is between Chuck Schumer and a TV camera, but uh, uh, we said it about the model too. <laughs> They're very aggressive, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, you do get a sense that it's it's performance art. I mean, it's, it's theater, on almost street theater, brought into yeah. the Senate. Yeah, I mean. But it's feeding... The cynicism and the anger. Now, what is Congress rated? Seventeen percent, sixteen percent, eight. And Bush is not much, much better off. But Harry Reid at nineteen percent. I mean, this early. I mean, he should be up to high, and maybe will. I mean, who, who knows? But even though the American people are, it's, it's. I haven't figured out why they can be so much against Bush and at the same time be so much against the Democratic leader or Democratic Congress. I mean, it's sort of a pox on all your houses. They're just fed up. And I, and I don't know how you, how you put it back together. It's kind of Humpty Dumpty, you know. How does it compare with the mood of anger, cynicism, whatever, say, coming out of Watergate? Is it is it comparable, or is, is there something 
distinctive about this? Well, it was pretty, uh, pretty bitter in those days too, particularly the Watergate and then the Vietnam War, and uh, the McGovern Hatfield amendments. You're going to see McGovern later, and the McGovern Church amendments, and then McGovern Cooper amendments, and uh, pretty. Pretty tough debates, and I was generally on the other side. But uh, I don't think it ever got down and dirty. You know, it's it a pretty, pretty tough debate. But. but you know, one difference—I don't mean to answer my own question—one potential difference is, if you look at the seventy, you just answered it. You, you, you could, you could explain people's unhappiness. It was specifics. It was They were unhappy over the war. They were understandably unhappy about Watergate or the pardon. There were specifics. Now it seems to be much more systemic. Just a general dissatisfaction with the system. Well, except I think Iraq. I mean, that's sort of the Watergate of the and, and the whatever. That's really polarized people. And when you polarize the people, then you tend to polarize the elected officials because, you know, they all put their finger to the wind and they take polls and they read editorials and they go to town meetings and and uh, and it's always much easier to be against something. You know, you can always find fault with the other side. I mean, that's one thing, I guess, if there's anything good about being in the minority is that you don't have any responsibility. You just have to show up and, and, and generally oppose whatever the majority is trying to get done. And that's particularly true now. But, but I can recall in uh, when the Clinton health care plan, when Senator Mitchell was at majority kept us in part of August, which, you know, it's hard. These men and women want to go home when it's August to pass a health care bill, but he finally gave up. It wasn't going to happen. But I don't know. If somebody, maybe you've done this, you really sit down and take a look at it, you know, a decade at a time. Surely been changes because television and radio and Blogs and I blogs, whatever, YouTube, and anybody can get access to. If I want to make the evening news, I just go out on the Senate floor and make some stupid statement, or maybe it might even be a smart statement. <laughs> Less likely to get on the news, but uh, that's the one-way ticket to the. How did television? Cause you were on the floor, I guess, weren't you? The when C-SPAN turned on the cameras, how, how did that come about? I'll give credit to Senator Baker. Really, that really wanted the team, and he had bipartisan support. Senator Byrd was opposed to it, and then I think after Baker left, I came along, and I I kind of agreed with Byrd for a while. But then I decided, and I think my colleagues decided, let's let's we ought to do this. Uh, and Senator Byrd had a lot of concerns about people who would grandstand and all this, but it really hadn't turned out that way. There's some people who 
speak every day. I think Senator Dorgan every morning he speaks, and he's probably got a regular following with North Dakota. But I like it. I watch C-SPAN when I'm home. So, <laughs> so on balance, you think it's been good for the Senate? Yeah, I think it's good. And good. And again, the there are people who really watch it, and I assume, I assume surely they must college, be some college courses given on, you know, political science or whatever, and they probably watch C-SPAN and get a lot about it. And you can, if you're really interested in an issue, you can, you can get both sides. Yeah. Did you notice a, a, a change in terms of how people approached you after the cameras were turned on? I mean, in, just in terms of uh, man on the street kind of interaction? Well, I think, you know, people might say, I saw you on C-SPAN, you know, or, or something, but uh, I, don't, I don't remember any big difference. I think we didn't, we tried radio first for a while, I think, in the Senate. I kind of, we didn't want to make the big step, so we tried radio and then TV. Uh, it hadn't made the Supreme Court yet, but. Do you think? You think it's coming? Probably, but it'd be a while. Probably should be a while. But I know we're doing public's business, so I guess they ought to be able to keep an eye on us. And I must think that people are watching must want. Oh my God, what's this world coming to? <laughs> they turn it on the tube, and there's a quorum call, and they hear music in the background, and they keep looking for somebody who's going to say something, and nobody shows up. Corn cog goes on and on and on, and the little thing in the bottom says they're negotiating or some something which probably isn't happening. But uh, so I imagine the first-time viewer kind of wonders what what are, what are we paying these people for? You know, is it safe to say most of the work of the Senate goes on the committees off the floor? Off the floor, in committees, and then in little huddles and. Either the chairman's office, or the ranking member's office, or the leader's office, and particularly if you're trying to work together uh, in the committee, finance committee, Senator Long and I used to work together a lot. Uh, Senator Moynihan was great to work with when I was chairman, and uh, I think right now, you know, Grassley and Baucus. Nothing partisan there. They just agree with each other. So, and of course, there's more of a level of trust too. I think at the committee level, I think it's I'm not sure I'd say that about the Judiciary Committee, but is that just because people work together more, more yeah. spend more time working together? I remember in the Ag Committee, Senator Ellender from Louisiana was chairman. Uh, and Senator Talmadge was chairman too from Georgia, and they both had the same idea. You, all you wheat guys, go over there and work out the wheat program, and you corn guys, cotton guys, go over there, da 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 da. And you came back and you put it all together, the pieces, and you had a farm bill. <laughs> so as long as you didn't, you know, you weren't too greedy. Uh, you could get about anything you wanted in the farm bill, and it vote would generally be twenty to zero. And how's that changed? I, I don't think that's changed much. 
as long as you're giving money away, it's pretty hard to vote against it. <coughs> and farmers, uh, they like to go to their mailbox to get their checks. And, and a lot of it is deserved, but some of it, like any other federal program, is gotten out of hand without getting into it. We pay farmers now are getting four dollars a bushel for corn, an eighteen cent per bushel subsidy, which was passed when the corn was two dollars. Of course, now the market's taking care of it, but you can't take that away from them because, you know, it's like taking somebody off your Christmas card list. You know, they're never going to forgive you. So uh, that's that's the part that I think we need to worry about when it comes to leadership and how do you how do you kill a program once it started well I used to have a list of screwy programs like uh, raising they stopped raising cavalry horses at Fort Riley Kansas I don't know not many years ago <laughs> you know they hadn't used the cavalry for I don't know how many years they were still breeding cavalry horses. And we had a little list of these crazy things that the government was still involved in. Pretty hard. And every president, Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, will send to Congress a list of these programs that ought to be killed. And most every Congress, Democrat or Republican, will reject most of them. Because there's always somebody you know, somebody from Arkansas or California or Kansas or wherever that has an interest in that program. So, And how about base closings? Oh, base closing, yeah. I remember they closed the Schilling Air Force Base, and that was my first term in Congress in 1962. And I was in the House, and I remember trying to reach my senators Senator Pearson couldn't be found, and Senator Carlson said, we only announce openings. <laughs> we don't announce closing. <laughs> so there I was left my first term <laughs> closing a big, big base in Salina, Kansas, the biggest city in my district. Going to put a lot of people out of work. That was a pretty tough. But it turned out all right. We worked hard on it, got a lot of other... Things moved into the air base. Now, that's in your turn. Of course, John Kennedy's in the White House. Did, did that yeah. make a difference? <laughs> that there was a, a Democrat in the White House and a Republican in the in the district, or was it? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure they had Brack then. But maybe how they closed it, but I don't think so. Yeah. I think generally, uh, you know, there was some thought that. Clinton may have weighed in on a couple of California bases uh, in one of the BRAC rounds. But I, I don't think generally, I don't think presidents keep their their hands off because it's they want to blame. So they want to say, well, I'm sorry, I had nothing to do with this. I don't know. Is that your worst nightmare? I mean, as a first-term congressman, having, having a... Oh, a, yeah, but Fort Riley was on, always on the list. And I figured as long as I was the leader of the Senate, it would not close. And it's a good thing it didn't, as it turned out, with you know the Gulf crisis and other things that have happened since. 
we only have 10 infantry divisions and uh, it's become a very important place. And without it, Fort Riley and Junction City and other towns would literally shut down. Were you ever in a, in a, in a room with I mean, someone, I mean, the Secretary of Defense or the President or someone where something like this came up and you said point blank? Uh, oh, yeah. No. no. Or, I mean, what? Well, I mean, I, I, I can't remember which, whatever Secretary of Defense it was at the time. You know, I'd make the case for Fort Riley because one of the problems was it's too small. We need more acreage. We can't test our weapons, the tanks, da 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 da, da. So we'd try to resolve all those problems and take away all the negatives. But you always had your delegation, you know, from the area and tears in her eyes and, you know, this is the end of the world if this happens. That's partly true. <laughs> so, but, yeah, you have to plead your case. I know Elizabeth has six in North Carolina. None of them are touched by BRAC, but you know, it's, it's tough. And explain the BRAC process. Well, it's a process where I can't remember how many are on the BRAC commission now, but it's a base closing commission, and it's nonpartisan, composed of, uh, again, I should know how it's selected, but, and they're given the responsibility to look at all the bases and DOD makes recommendations. That's where they come from, but you can't justify this, you can't justify this. And then all the delegations come in and make their case, and then the so-called BRAC makes a final decision, like closing Walter Reed Hospital, which is something we're looking at in our little Wounded Warrior Commission. How can you close a flagship hospital in the middle of a conflict when there's nothing to take its place? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So, but it's pretty tough. I mean, they're very seldom are they overturned. But what does that say? It's interesting because, in effect, Congress, and I suppose for that matter, the executive branch, has has delegated that responsibility. Well, Congress gets to vote. I mean, you know, they have to vote the commission's report. But again, everybody who's been saved wants it to pass. <laughs> so you can almost count the votes before it ever happened because, oh, it didn't take my base. I'm for it. Da 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 da. So the the few men and women in Congress who lost bases are not in the majority, so and, they, they lose. And isn't that, in some ways, isn't that almost uh, parallel with the Blue Ribbon Commission? I mean, basically, if, if the political process says, oh, this is yeah. just too hot a potato to handle. It's like Social Security Commissions, you know. The only one that ever worked was the one in 1983, when uh, Senator Moyer and I are on Claude Pepper and Alan Greenspan was chairman of that commission. But uh, that did work. And we did adopt, uh, and the Social Security is still good, and it's going to be good till 2017 at least. But most of them, you, you point a commission, they report, and they say, don't call me, I'll call you, and that's the end of it. <laughs> Maybe a couple little things get in. and But it's, it's a way to, you know, don't have to make the tough choices. You blame the commission. 
I'm not on the commission. Bob Dole was on the commission, or Pat Moynihan. Uh, Is there more of it? It seems, it just seems casual to a casual observer that over this period of time, there's more and more, as, as Congress becomes more and more gridlocked, there's more and more inclination to uh, sort of... Farm it out. Yeah. Contract out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's always a thought there. Maybe you just had the private sector take over most things and Congress just vote on it. But uh, but you're going to be interviewing Senator McGovern. You talk, not a commission, but we had a select committees. Another thing that was pretty popular, it's not so popular now, on nutrition. And just that one committee you know, changed the whole face of how we look at hunger in America and around the world. And how did it come into existence, the committee? Uh, appointed by the Senate. I think, I think Senator Mansfield was the leader then. Uh, urged by Senator McGovern and others. I was on the committee. So that's how McGovern and I ended up working together on all these different programs. I mean, he's he's the real leader. I'm just a disciple. So. But in fact, he celebrates his 85th birthday Saturday, tomorrow. Just lost his wife, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently he's not, he's lost quite a bit of weight. He's just not coping with it too well. So, so maybe you can cheer him up at 3 o'clock. <laughs> I know your time's limited. Let me just get back to the yeah, court. Back. a couple of things on the court. Um, the um, Roman Vriska. Mediocre. <laughs> tell, we need... us, tell us about Senator Vriska it is. I think he uh, made an, what, a speech on the floor or something about mediocrity. Th 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 there are lots of mediocre people and they, they deserve. They deserve mediocrity. I think it was uh, Carswell or one of them. Yeah, it was G. Harold Carswell. Well, they, they had mediocrity. They had, he, had, he, had a, he had the right nominee. Uh, but uh, did you know then that Carswell was uh, kind of toast? A, yeah. Well, well, that he was a kind of third-rate. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I was too disappointed when we lost. <laughs> I was with Hainsworth. It was a Democrat, by the way. I, you know, I don't think politics was a conservative Democrat, but uh, Carswell. But I remember, and Senator Rusk is a very bright lawyer, you know, but I don't know how he came up with this statement. I guess he figured if this is a mediocre nominee, there's probably a lot of mediocre people out there, so he'll fit right in. So I wonder if sometimes partisanship demands too much. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes you kind of have to hold your nose when you make this. Or, or either that, when you're making a speech, kind of cross your fingers and, and say, I hope nobody's listening. But you have to carry the flag. Particularly if you're the leader, you have to carry the flag. If you don't, they give the flag to somebody else. But And I voted for a lot of things just to help somebody out on the, so they at least have a few votes for their amendments. You know, and so is Senator Mitchell and others, both parties. So the leader takes a few hits, but. Then, of course, you had the, the, the Bork nomination, which really is a pivotal 
moment in this whole history. Yeah, that sort of the Nita Hill thing, everything that followed was the Thomas thing, and you know, when even a few new words in the dictionary, I think borked and yeah, and uh, well, and bork was well, obviously, as you know, everybody knows he's very erudite, intelligent scholar. Is too conservative. There's also the, the suggestion that he really wasn't a very good witness. Yeah, well, I think if, you know he should have gone to charm school somewhere, at least for a day. Just go for a whole week. But, uh, but I think he felt so strongly about his views. I don't think he. I, I, I would, maybe arrogance too strong a word, but I think he just felt so confident. Maybe he's just overconfident that he was right and that he knew the law better than all these so-and-sos up there on the committee and it was a pretty brutal session and Thomas wouldn't have made it had it not been for Senator Danforth because he had worked for Danforth and Danforth was there for every minute of the hearing there was Senator Danforth Cedar right beyond Thomas when he was, uh, when, he, when Anita Hill was up there. He was there every day. And Danforth was a moderate conservative. He had, you know, he had friends on the Democratic side, which, I mean, we wouldn't have Souter without Senator Rudman. Well, see, that raises, that's yeah, that's that's that raises the question. I mean, are there members of the Senate who have this credibility yeah. that can, Shield to some degree a controversial sure. nominee. I think there are the two good examples. There's probably other I'm trying to think of, but certainly Danforth, uh, and I think Sununu and Rudman, the two of them picked Souter, and turned out to be a big, big mistake. Although Rudman still argues with me that he's a conservative. I said, boy, I'm waiting. But uh, was that a? But Rudman brought him around to your office, and Sununu was at the White House, and this is a great guy, and they'd known him for years, and he had a flawless record, and he was a strict constructionist, not getting into details. And you know, Senator Rudman was a, one of our outstanding senators, bright, good friend. Take his word for it. Was that payback to Sununu for what he had done in the New Hampshire primary? Well, he deserved something. I think payback was getting a job in the White House, uh, Chief of Staff. I think that was a big payback. It wouldn't have happened had I been elected. But, but uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to get another case where a Democrat or Republican senator. Of course, in Steve Breyer's case, you know, Ted Kennedy, he'd worked for Kennedy. And Kennedy's got a lot of friends on both sides. I mean, all, all these people have friends. It's, we read so much about the partisanship. But, uh, yeah, if you've got a Ted Kennedy walking around with your Warren Rudman introducing to these different senators, particularly the, on a committee where he serves and uh, you serve, it makes a difference. 
And the notion, <laughs> as long as I've been around, at least, I've been hearing Orrin Hatch wanted to be on the on the court. I mean, is, is, is it true that it didn't, sure it didn't work for John Tower? No. I mean, what is the rule about former se- senators? senators? Yeah, senators being shoe-ins. Yeah, I've always thought Tower is held to a little higher standard, maybe shouldn't say higher, but he's only five foot two or whatever. But uh, because he was accused of being a drunk and... Was there a certain amount of hypocrisy? I thought there was quite a bit. In fact, I wanted to bring, the White House wouldn't let me, I wanted, what you have a right to do is to bring Tower into the Senate and let him speak, sort of defense. But they thought that would, they didn't want to do that. Because I thought we'd still salvage Tower's nomination. And the person who really probably uh, sealed his doom is really one of his friends, Sam Nunn. He was a good good person, good good senator. And he just didn't think Know, for whatever reason, but to, you know, to measure what kind of a guy I was when the tower, uh, when they had memorial service, there was Sam Nunn running on the front row. So, what was so, Nunn's objection? It was it was genuine. It wasn't. It was genuine. No, I don't. Sam Nunn. I think you know, in nearly every case I can recall, this pretty straightforward guy. But I think he. Probably had some concerns about, you know, if you were had a problem with, or even a perceived problem with alcohol, maybe uh, Secretary of Defense makes some pretty important decisions, and you want him to be pretty clear-headed at the time. But I know of at least one senator who had had the problem himself, who was condemning Tower. So I've. You find a few of those around. Uh, hypocrisy aside, is it a legitimate? Was it a legitimate concern? I mean, obviously Sam Nunn thought it was. Yeah. In, in Tower's case, was it? And, and is it is it a rule that should be applied? Uh, are she there certain senators, jobs where it applies, and others? It's, it's the way things that you know, Senator Dodd voted for Tower's nomination because when Senator Dodd's father was censured, Tower voted against it. So, you know, you have to go back. There's always somebody's got a motive, which may be a good motive. I'm not saying they're bad. But some reason, 10 years ago, this guy offended me or something. And in Tower, because Tower's kind of a prickly guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, he, yeah. I mean, he was not Mr. Congeniality. No. It, it, very smart again, very bright, and uh, didn't suffer fools. <laughs> But, yeah, he was, uh, he could cut you off pretty quickly. But but he and Goldwater were great buddies, you know. Goldwater could cut you off pretty briefly, too, with his cane. But uh, it, was, it was kind of a blow, you know. I, I think, that, you know, that was, I, th- I think the only good that came of that is, is from my I'm not being selfish about this because I was a big tower supporter. He was we were fraternity brothers and all that stuff, Kappa Sigmas. 
and he was and he was one of the guys that took part in all these. He'd go to all these conclaves, speak to college students, you know, even though he'd been out of college for years. I mean, really was a good person in a lot of ways. But there was always that question that, you know, after Bush won the primary and and I lost, that, uh, you know, when it won the election, that I wouldn't be a good leader. It's always something. But I think, I think my efforts in the Tower nomination kind of washed that over. Because that was also right out of the bat. I mean, it was yeah. the first test. Yeah, it was pretty tough for president. Bush to lose one of his well, good friends, plus, you know, somebody he thought was qualified. Was he angry? And did you see? I, I, I don't remember. You know, I'd have to guess, but I'd, I, I would be, <laughs> so. He, he knew Tower pretty well. I mean, he knew John Tower, and uh, but let's face it, Tower had a problem, and the problem cost him a job. Yeah. The um, go back to Bork because at that point you were obviously in a leadership position, um, and I assume Judge Bork came and sat down and talked with he you. and his wife too. She was there. In fact, she went. I think they're very office with him. She a lawyer too. Uh, do you, what do you? I think there is some. I don't think Judge Bork, but there was some little rumor at the time that I wasn't working hard enough on the nomination or something. I mean, something got back to me that somehow well, Bob Dole's lukewarm on this nomination, which wasn't the case. But uh, I don't think, I don't know whether Bork ever felt that way or not. But uh, what, what do you talk about in those meetings? I mean, we see those meetings, and I mean, do you sort of give them advice about the confirmation process? Yep, that's what I would do is I'd generally be the first one the, the nominee would see when I was the leader. And uh, generally they'd send an escort, Tom Corlogus, somebody from the White House picked who knew the ropes and knew the senators. But, you know, I couldn't lecture him on the law. I mean, this guy, these are experts. But I could tell him a little about the Senate and what I thought about who we ought to obviously see first. And, and if I knew something that might sort of give him an end with a certain senator, but where you're from, anything like that. But most of it just happy talk, you know, congratulations, good luck. <laughs> what now, now with Clarence Kennedy, Thomas. I remember Kennedy too, who's turned out to be the swing person on the court. And uh, I know. Never could quite figure out where he came from, how his name bubbled to the top. Well, remember, people forget Reagan had two failed nominees because there was Judge G Douglas Ginsburg in between. Oh, that's right, yeah. And he went literally, he went up in smoke, literally. Cocaine. <laughs> uh, marijuana. No, marijuana, yeah. Marijuana. 
as you know, and and so he disappeared. I think they needed to find someone fast. Yeah, and that's how Kennedy. Yeah, arrived. And Kennedy was the third choice. Californian, so maybe that helped. Yeah. Scalia couldn't be confirmed today, could he? Today? Yeah. I doubt it. Oh, today, no. I mean, yeah. it, it might have not, not since the election. But if it's amazing, you go back and look. He was he was confirmed unanimously. And where? It's, he was confirmed unanimously. Scalia. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. Was nominated. I mean, can you imagine nominating a Scalia? Yeah, but I mean, the point is that, you know, if the, if the man or woman is well qualified, he can have a different philosophy. And the fact that I don't agree with your philosophy doesn't mean you're not qualified. So apparently that was because Scalia could dazzle people with his knowledge, you know, so, and had a pretty good sense of humor. And he, in fact, I remember a House delegation calling on me in 1996 wanting Scalia on the ticket. Oh, it's a good idea. Didn't happen. Well, what did you? Uh, were any feelings ever put out? I think it was John Boehner. Come to think of it, the present Republican leader. Well, apparently they had done a little checking around. I don't know whether Scalia had ever mentioned or whether they just thought it was a great idea. And you know, Catholic vote, conservative. There were some would didn't quite trust me all the way on the right, which is a plus. But, uh, now, interesting. It was an interesting idea. Did, what did you do? Did you, were, was there, was I there think any? we put him on. I don't think we ever got down to checking him out, but, you know, it was. we kept a roster. <laughs> did, I mean, did you have reason to believe that he would have... Uh, Accepted? If, uh, I kind of felt in my gut that they wouldn't have come to me unless they'd had some been interesting. Oh. I don't know, where's his home state? Good question, don't know. Maybe he's the in the district, I don't know. Yeah. 